When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. of pod i'm just kidding welcome back to the house of pod it's been so long i missed all you people oh my god my name is kave i am the host of this humor adjacent medical podcast today back with me i have two hop all-stars two people that you know and love toxicologist er doctor ryan marino and psychiatrist suicidologist tyler black guys how are you doing well yeah i'm pretty good I'm really glad, glad to be to here. See I'm really glad, glad you're to back. see you guys. Yeah, I missed you guys. Yeah, we, I missed you guys too. So um, I took a short break for two reasons. One, I was doing that Girls on Boys podcast, the podcast about the show on Amazon, The Boys, which is a good show. You should check it out. You should check out the show and then listen to our podcast on it with Rebecca Watson. It's awesome. But there was this other thing that happened. I had a uh, child. I had a child. And that's kind of where I've been. I've been doing child stuff with, with children. Um, and, and trying to make sure this baby uh, sleeps and eats and poops and does all things it's supposed to do. Here's the thing I realized is you guys are still young men on the scene. You're not like not burdened with children. So I will tell you this. Some parts of it get better and easier as you get older. And some parts of it get harder. The parts of it that got a little bit easier is the emotional aspect of having a kid like you guys if this happens at some point if you that becomes your path if you guys go down it be awesome and we'll talk all about it but one thing you are never prepared for is the emotional like reaction you can have to children like the insane emotional response you can have like if your kid's not eating if your kid's <laughs> screaming and you can't get to like not start cry, stop crying it's like you're not thinking properly you're a little bit out of your mind there's lack of sleep you're not in the right headspace. And you're just like, why does this child hate me? There's just like this insane emotional response that you have to it. No, nothing prepared me for that. The thing that's easier, though, as you get older is you kind of like, all right, all right, I know what's going to happen. This kid's going to scream and cry. And we're going to do our best to try and soothe it. And it's okay. It's going to be okay. So that part of it's gotten a lot better. The part that has not is the lack of sleep. Holy shit. As I got older, I thought we were supposed to need less sleep. <laughs> I mean, you don't have to tell me that. I already know that from from pulling call shifts. Like uh, call shifts hit me so much harder in my 40s than they ever did when I was younger. Don't recover, yeah. right? You don't recover as quickly Incredible. as you used to. Yeah, yeah. I just got off of a string of overnights, and I don't. Know, it's been rough, right? It. I thought as we got older, though, it's supposed to. You're supposed to need less REM sleep. I thought that was like one of the benefits of becoming an old person. I think it's the recovery time thing, though. I think it's just. Whatever so like, you're lacking, it takes you longer to get back. Yeah. But congratulations. Probably... Thanks, man. Yeah. Congrats. That's excellent news. I got I gotta tell you, you know what's funny is when this child was born, it's my third. I got the same response from the nurses and the doctors at the delivery that we did for our first two kids. Cause I don't think 
the doctors here in San Francisco and the nurses are used to delivering Persian babies <laughs> because Persian babies are like born with like a full head of hair. And they're like, oh, my God, they have a full head of hair and eyelashes. <laughs> and I think white babies come out not quite fully cooked yet. You know what I mean? There's like they're not quite ready. They're always kind of bald and they kind of look like, you know, they need a little more time in the in, in the womb. Um, where my like sons came out with like a five o'clock shadow and they, <laughs> they're just like, oh, my God. Anyways, today, speaking of uh, long, strange trips, we are going to talk about psychedelics, psychedelics. So let's let's get right into it. Who thinks they can just define what a psychedelic is for me? I mean, I can try. A psychedelic is kind of a not a great definition. It's a very broad category. Uh, that doesn't have really a concrete um, actuality, but usually is referring to hallucinogens and um, substances that affect your consciousness in terms of uh, causing visions, sounds, lights, different perception of reality. So uh, psychedelics are like a, a subclass of hallucinogenic drugs then, right? Certainly, I mean, there's, I mean, lots of things can provide hallucinations. Um, I think it's that kind of the psychedelic experience is one that's kind of one of spiritualness, connectedness, uh, visions that have meaning. There's usually like an ascribed experience to it, whereas a lot of uh, hallucinogenic experiences that aren't due to psychedelics are just straight like, oh, there's an elephant in the room. Like it's, it's not like a, it doesn't have a deeper meaning or a, a spiritual connection or an overall anything if i'm correct lsd was the first synthetic hallucinogen right i i remember learning about this story in college i think it was 1938 i'm looking it up right now hallucinogenic properties were recognized by accident in 1943 when uh dr hoffman inadvertently exposed himself to lsd while working in his laboratory which sounds like an amazing story <laughs> because Ryan, I wish I knew you back then. My personal story is I was accidentally um, exposed or inadvertently exposed to what we think was LSD. And it was one of the worst nights of my life. Like, And I imagine it might have been fun had I known what was going on or what was going to happen. But I didn't. That's a whole long story. We'll have to get into that at some <laughs> point. But I can tell you, not not expecting those effects was not fun i could see though why it's fun right i mean can can you that can you talk a little bit ryan about how it's used as a recreational drug so i think for the most part um people just do it to have fun to experience different different things see shapes colors oh no sorry my dogs are that's okay and I mean, spend a few hours outside of reality, the same way people use other substances to kind of just change, change their existence a little bit for a short time. But uh, there is a big component where people use this for spiritual aspects, and particularly in certain cultures and religions, these have tremendous significance, not LSD per se, but uh, some of the like naturally occurring hallucinogens. Um, and so I mean, even today, I think there is a lot of kind of different cultures and religious uh, attachments to these. What's the neurobiology of it? What, what are we, what kind of neurotransmitters are we talking about? Serotonin, uh, dopamine? What, what do we know even? It's yeah, it's, it's mostly serotonin. Um, so we feel like most of the effect comes from a, a specific type of serotonin called it's a sub receptor called two a five HT two a. And it, it seems like, that effect is where most of the most of the psychedelics converge. Um, they're all different in their different ways, but it does seem to be a serotonergic effect. So yeah, I mean, the chemistry and the physiology is, is my favorite part of this. Um, for all intents and purposes, if you're thinking about hallucinogenic drugs, they all act on your serotonin receptors and your serotonergic pathway. And as Tyler said, it's usually 5-HT2A. Of the hallucinogenic drugs, there's only one exception to this rule, which is salvia, which um, reportedly has very negative hallucinations. So I wouldn't recommend that to anybody. Um, dissociative drugs also kind of sometimes get lumped in here. And the difference between a dissociation and a hallucination is 
a little ambiguous to me at least. Um, but that would be things like ketamine and stuff definitely work, work in different ways. Yeah. Ketamine is an amazing drug. I, I have not as a gastroenterologist had that much opportunity to use it, but I remember once in fellowship, we, I was working with an ER doctor and I had to scope a young guy and young men uh, or young people in general are hard to sedate, you know, with the typical medications you do for a colonoscopy or endoscopy because they're just burning through the, the medication quicker. It takes a lot more to get them to where you need to go. The ER doctor was like offered, why don't I just give him some ketamine um, and drop him into the K hole. And which I'm like, first time I'd heard that phrase. Um, although sure it is. Yeah. We can talk about my home videos later, but um, we <laughs> deep in the K hole. <laughs> that should be the name of the show. <laughs> Welcome to the K hole. <laughs> With Kave Hoda. It really fits. I mean, Kave Hoda. Yeah. Okay. Ho. Oh, wow. Yeah. Actually, it's a little too on the nose. <laughs> and as a gastro. Anyways, so the, the guy was like, the kid gets the medication and he's, his eyes are open still. And I like look to the ER doctor and I'm like, um, so how do, how do I know when I'm ready to, to go? How do I know when he's ready? He's like, watch this. And he, he leans over and he whispers into the, the kid's ear. He's like, hey, are you tripping balls? And the kid just like his eyes wide open, just nods his head. Yeah. He's like, you're ready. <laughs> and I went and it was like the easiest procedure I'd done. It was so like the, the kid was fine. Didn't remember a thing about it. It was totally comfortable. It was unnerving because he was like, his eyes were open looking at me while I did the procedure, which I am not used to, but it went perfectly fine. The kid did great. So I, I can see, I could see why ketamine is so useful. And then when I did a, a psychiatry rotation in jail, the really savvy inmates were trying to find ways to get on ketamine so they could just sort of disassociate during their time there. And just, it would just go without them thinking about it. So yeah, yeah. I, I can definitely see that. So anyway, sorry, I totally derailed. I totally derailed your, your uh, explanation of, of these medications with that. I don't think you derailed it. I mean, I think that's a good kind of segue into more conversation because I feel like the big topic here to discuss is like how these are used medically and specifically for like psychiatric indications. Mm-hmm. And Tyler will be able to give us a lot more on that. But I mean, ketamine is one of the kind of like very front front runners, so to speak, for like refractory depression treatment. Yeah. Um, but it's not a hallucinogenic, actually, right? It's a dissociative. Um, okay. So so like you said, you described that experience that they were there, but they were really not, not really there. there. Yeah. And dissociation, it, it's a, it's a, it is a blurry line with hallucination. I say when you're hallucinating, you're quite sure of what's happening and it's dissociation is more of a puzzled, puzzled feeling of changing of reality. It's like things don't feel real. Things don't, I don't feel real. Um, and it's more of a puzzling experience. Whereas hallucinations by definition are typically quite convincing. Like you're actually seeing things and you're actually hearing things. Mm-hmm. Dissociative experiences can be a little bit more fuzzy and questioned, but um uh, I'm actually, I'm part of running a trial right now on, on ketamine in kids for suicidality. I'm personally a little bit on the skeptical side. So we've designed it pretty strongly uh, using a triple blind and using uh, an active placebo with blinding questions. Um, but uh, there, it's all the rage in psychiatry right now. You know, treatment resistant depression is a really difficult thing. It's, it's not just you know, someone having a depression, it's, it's, you've tried multiple types of treatment, including psychotherapy, including medications, and you're still strongly suffering from depression. Um, and ketamine has shown a strong open label signal, um, which is very interesting, but this is a group that's desperate for something to work and very prone to blinding effects and those types of things. So, you know, it's one of those things where we're cautiously optimistic about. Mm-hmm. I will say personally, <laughs> I've seen a lot of people get ketamine for procedural reasons, and I haven't seen very many come out of them saying my mood is so much better. So I have to say, I, I'm a little bit dubious about these large effect sizes that are being purported, like better than any treatment we've ever seen. Uh, I think we'd kind of, we kind of have a eureka moment well before 2022 on that one. Good reason to be skeptical. I mean, I think the downsides of ketamine are pretty minimal. Uh, I wouldn't say they're non-existent, but it, it's a pretty safe medicine. And I mean, if it, if it helps some people, it would be great. But yeah, thinking that this is some sort of wonder drug, wonder treatment that just showed up in the last couple of years is, is a little 
Yeah, it, you know, we, you think about how we discovered, for example, um, um, mood stabilizers that we brought out of anti-epileptic medications. It was because people with epilepsy who also had mood disorders were like, this is really helping me. Um, you know, and, and sometimes we discover these drugs sort of serendipitously, but when we don't see it with um, ketamine, I mean, it's, ketamine's been used for a very, very long time in a diverse group of people for a number of procedures. Like if you you have like benzodiazepines and ketamine if you're going to get your arms set in the ER. Um, and we don't see people popping out of those ketamine moments with, with a profound rebound in their, in their moods. So um, that's why when I, when I designed the trial, um, you know, I specifically went for a triple blind. So there's an active comparator. So these are people who haven't received drugs before. So it's being compared to a benzodiazepine. And there's also being compared to a placebo. Plus the next day we're going to ask them which, which they th think they got so that we can control both for the active and, and passive placebo, as well as for whether or not they were blinded to the experience. Wow. Triple blind, strong, strong. <laughs> yeah. What, what dosing are you using for this and how does that dosing yeah. compare to like what it's people would use recreationally? Dosing. So, so it's really interesting that the doses are actually pretty, they're almost homeopathic. So, so 0 0.5 milligrams per kilogram of ketamine, for example, um, which is well below the dissociative sort of threshold. Um, mm -hmm. And so this is not the same dose that we do for procedures when we're trying to, to reset something or to, to do a colonoscopy in the case that you described. Um, it, it's pre-dissociative. But those are the doses that they're they're looking at in depression. Um, so it's it's not really the, the strong hallucinogenic or dissociative effect of the drug that seems to be driving it. It, it seems to be just the presence of the substance. So let's, let me move this now to LSD and <laughs> the proposed use and in, in how it could be potentially used uh, for psychiatric illness. Um, can, I, can I say yeah. one thing about ketamine before we jump? Please. So also to not to be like conspiratorial here, but one of the biggest proponents of ketamine for refractory depression is the manufacturer of the nasal spray Spravato, um, who have been pushing for this. It's a very expensive formulation and drug with, I mean, ketamine is ancient. It's dirt cheap. Um, and so but not the nasal spray, <laughs> the nasal spray is incredibly expensive and they want insurers to cover it. They want people to be getting this. Um, and while I, I don't really care if someone has a nasal spray for ketamine at home, whatever, um, that kind of like cost, cost and evidence manipulation, uh, is a little suspicious. Well, I mean, I don't think you're being a conspiratorial nut. I mean, you haven't gone full QAnon on this one. This seems pretty, <laughs> this sounds like a pretty reasonable uh, market it strategy really for them. A lot of the, a lot of like this reliance on these studies that look at the nasal spray when ketamine is available in so many forms, you don't need to test the nasal spray, but they're doing it. You can tell that there's a specific, we want to show that the nasal spray works. Um, and so you, you always worry that there's a bit of a, um, you know, the design, the trial was designed to succeed sort of uh, set up. Um, and I'm very disappointed when I don't see, especially for something like ketamine, where you're going to know what you got, there's a really good chance you're going to know what you got. Um, not even an effort to check the blinding. That's a really big red flag from my point of view. So, so let me ask you this though, because you guys are using a different dosing mm -hmm. um, for, for your study, is there evidence with other psychedelics in their treatment of depression, PTSD, <laughs> regarding the dosing. For example, LSD. Mm -hmm. If LSD is, people have talked about it a lot for things like treatment resistant depression, substance abuse disorders, severe depression, anxiety related to terminal illness, et cetera, lots of these reasons, but it seems like the dosing has to be high. Is that, is that correct? I mean, can you use the sub, I guess, hallucinogenic mm -hmm. uh, dosing of it and still get the effect? Um, whenever I see studies of this, it's, it, there's a few things that go into to psychedelic psychiatry studies. First is it's usually a psychedelic paired with therapy. So it's a guided therapeutic experience where the psychotherapist is providing therapy while the person is on the hallucinogen. And so the, per, oh, the that, intent sounds, is, that sounds like a fun job. The, 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 the intent, well, we'll talk about that because it's it's a little bit too fun for some of them. So there, there, there's sometimes there's some shared taking of psychedelics, which is a little bit on the, mm, you wonder that, about yeah. that side. A little um, fentanyl for you, a little <laughs> well, for me. This is, and and, <laughs> and um, 
uh, and then it's a guided experience. Now, now usually the intent is to get the person hallucinating, the per to have the person to have a psychedelic experience um, and to sort of have an altered consciousness. So yeah, you're using those doses. But I will say like, you know, you can go back to the 50s and you just see these trials, these trials that are really just case studies of like three people. And like, you'll read the methods mm -hmm. and it's like, we took acid together and we waited till we got high. And then we talked about things like it, it is not the most rigorous <laughs> science. And, and there's so many things at play when so, when that's going on. I will say in my jurisdiction in BC, there was a, uh, a report that came out. It's very disturbing. Uh, the MAPS group, which is looking at um, they're the big, they're the big um, research consortium that's looking at psychedelics and psychiatric treatment. Um, they were supervising a study in in BC um, where the participants were being cuddled and and uh, very appropriate inappropriate things were happening to Cuddled. patients yeah. um, on video. And and the Maps program sat on it for about six years without looking at the videos. So <laughs> I always wonder, like, what's happening behind the closed door? I think we we if we are going to be doing this, we have to make sure that we have some pretty strong standards because you're, you're dealing with altered people. And, yeah. but it, it, that, that I wish I could say that psychiatry doesn't have, and psychology have, have like a history of abusing people who are vulnerable. But um, if you take people who are altered, um, like I said, it can be a, a little bit inappropriate. So there's been some real concerns about the ethics of some of these, yeah. these practitioners. Yeah. Well, as a card-carrying Scientologist, I have my doubts about your profession. <laughs> yeah. <that's> um, <laughs> I think no. too, I mean, that's a good, it's a good point to bring up not only for like the patient safety and kind of ethical concerns, but in talking about how these things work recreationally and therapeutically, uh, a big part of it is kind of like the overall experience. If, if these chemicals just worked to cure depression, cure PTSD, whatever we're talking about, then everyone who took them would have those problems fixed. And, and we'd know that by now. Um, but like in the, the States, the big group that has been studying psilocybin and kind of led the push for psychedelic research down at um, Johns Hopkins with, I think Griffiths is like their, their main investigator. I mean, they have a very controlled environment. They have rooms with like music and scents and lava lamps and I mean, I, I don't want to over-exaggerate here, but it is a very controlled environment. And in my line of work and talking to people who just use recreational drugs, when people tell me about their bad trips and their good trips, and unfortunately, I mean, the toxicology, like research and evidence is not great. I can't do a study where people just get high and, and hang out. Um, the, the bad trips seem to be kind of very much experiential related as well. And kind of like the mindset that you go into things. Um, and so, I mean, again, I'm, I'm just talking here anecdotally, but uh, people who have like good experiences and have good outcomes seem to have been set up for success, so to speak. Yeah. So, but what, what about the dosing? What about that question? Is the dosing for LSD in terms of these psychiatric illnesses, is it the same dosing that they look mm -hmm. at for, you know, that, that people are taking uh, recreationally? There's just two streams. So there, there's conventional dosing where the intent is to use the hallucinogen at the hallucinogenic dose. Yeah. And then there's the microdosing strategy where you're taking far lower than what we would expect as a hallucinogenic dose. Um, and then there's a lot of proponents of microdosing. Microdosing is a pretty hot word right now. Um, it's kind of all the rage. And, and um, uh, but really interestingly, there was a study, a, a brand new study that they, they took people and it showed that people who microdosed showed higher scores on creativity and better mood. But when they controlled for blinding, the, the effect completely went away. And the conclusion of that study was that they, they feel like most of the effect is expectancy with, wow. with, um, uh, with psych with psychedelic microdosing. So there's a, there's a bit of an evidence stain right now on microdosing, but it's got a really strong proponent base. I, I imagine there'll be a, a lot more studies, mm -hmm. but because this is now something that's corporatized. It is, I telling you right now, if you want to make money, you just say the word psychedelic and you go to a venture capitalist and there is money available. Um, th they're all going to do this trick that psychedelic, you know, researchers have been doing for quite some time, which is very low ends where they take like 12 patients. They'll keep it open label and they'll say these people experience the benefit. And we'll just have all the, all sorts of phase two-ish trials and nothing randomized and placebo controlled. Mm -hmm. And, and 
there's just not a strong industry push to do that. So I really hope the FDA gets on that. You know, if we're going to approve these drugs, it should be on the basis of really strong evidence that would be randomized placebo controlled trials with blinding checks, um, because I think that's that's the area that um, they're trying to avoid. So why why isn't LSD and other psychedelics making that next step in the scientific process? Why is there not? It has the reputation already as being used. You can go to a million clinics right now and get LSD. You can get a million clinics right now and get psychedelics. It it reminds me of like right now, ketamine has no pediatric approvals in Canada. There's no reason for the drug manufacturer to seek them because when ketamine's used, it's used. Um, when, when the drug is already in use, there's very little incentive to get the thing approved. Um, so, so for, for these drugs, which don't really have a patentability on their drug basis, they really only have the market. Um, it's a question of branding and it's not really a question of, of, of getting a patent. And we see kind of a different phenomenon in the United States. I feel, um, it it ends up being the same, but like the psychedelics, all of these hallucinogens, um, are considered schedule one by our DEA, which means they have no medical indication. I mean, despite evidence, um, and that they have no safety in humans, despite the evidence. I mean, cannabis is considered schedule one in the United States. That should tell you everything about the scheduling system. But, um, so venture capital ends up being the ones who try to push for these studies and they end up being kind of ridiculous, like open label, just paying for people to get to use drugs um, if, if it even happens. And it's kind of uninterpretable. Someone sent me something recently about how some big study is about to happen and I forget what, what hallucinogen it was going to be. Um, but there's actually nothing in place. It was some venture capital firm had secured a, a bunch of funding to kind of push for people to use hallucinogens in some open label setting to show that they have medical indications. And even when it comes to things like ketamine, ketamine is uh, labeled and approved as a general anesthetic. And so outside of like operating rooms and intensive care units, it's, it's really difficult to get ketamine use because people will not approve general anesthetics. I mean, that's the same class as like inhaled medicines that that make people stop breathing make them paralyzed um and so yeah like the the evidence base is just terrible because of all of these there's there's myriad factors honestly do you guys feel that um we talked about psilocybin the the mushrooms Mm -hmm. i feel like there's there was a push briefly last year for for getting people to to use psilocybin for ptsd in particular Mm -hmm. um do you feel that there is evidence that it, that it works already? Or do you guys feel like it's just promising, but not there yet? So psilocybin is actually one of the few that we have. I mean, I don't want to say like high quality evidence, but have um, like reputable evidence uh, that it helps for depression. It may have some benefit in kind of end of life fear uh, worries, um, as well as smoking cessation and then even in terms of kind of the, the evidence basis for it, because psilocybin is one of the ones that was pushed for early on, um, like there was a, I think in the New England Journal of Medicine, they did a, a head-to-head of psilocybin versus escitalopram or Lexapro. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was a, a non-inferiority study and didn't have great numbers, but showed no inferiority to kind of like our standard of therapy for depression. Um, and I mean, from, from my perspective, psilocybin is pretty harmless to the human body. Uh, the, the worst things that I see are people like walking into traffic, mm-hmm. jumping out of windows, doing, doing weird things on psilocybin, but right, so you, think in, in on- you think in controlled environments, it's pretty safe. I, um, well, the, the one I'll put, I'll put a little bit of a caution is we have, I've had had a few cases and we see this from time to time of when you take hallucinogens and psilocybin seems one of them that it's prone lsd is another where that you have these like sort of per- perpetuating um hallucinogenic experiences and we call that hallucinogen persisting uh perception disorder hppd mm-hmm. um and it, it it it's really just a continual presence of hallucinations even after the psychedelic has well left uh, the building um it's not something like a, like Ryan said, I think the evidence is probably 
optimistic. It would be hard to say it's anything other than optimistic, but I, I still think like in terms of um, where where our evidence standard is for the things we use in psychiatry, we're still a long way away from sort of locking it in. Yeah. Um, and we're a long way away from understanding how to deliver it best and how to prevent the side effects and all those yeah. types of things. And so it's, it's promising, but man, the, the venture cap and the, and yeah. the industrialization of it has gone so beyond. I mean, you should well, see these websites. They're so beautiful. This is, you're touching on something that I think is important for us to sort of thread, which is, I don't think, any of the three of us is inherently against the, no. the these things. Um, and we, I think all see that there could be some real potential benefit to these things. I mean, that doesn't mean that they, we don't have to be serious about how we study them and how they are possibly delivered because there nothing is completely yeah. benign. I mean, you know, we all heard a, a story about, you know, someone doing LSD and, and becoming crazy for the rest of their life inducing some psychotic disorder. I mean, I personally get the sense that it's more about unmasking some latent psychiatric illness than causing it. I don't know. Maybe we don't know that yet. And there are some real significant things that can happen well, with LSD. It's rare, but there is. I looked it up before this. There are cases of cardiovascular collapse, hyperthermia, severe toxicity. And then, as you guys mentioned, there's we all know some sort of crazy story about someone who like whether or not it's true or not, who knows, but there's always a story of someone who did LSD and walked off a roof because they thought they could fly or something like that. Those are often well, urban legends, but yeah, you can, sure. you can have some really bad trip, a bad trip. I've not experienced one, but I've seen them. They look truly horrendous. Um, but I will say like, like Ryan and I both have a background, I think in pharmacology and toxicology, these are impressive drugs. Like they, they're going to have an effect. They're going to find a place. Um, the more we learn about the brain, the more we learn about the importance of these neurotransmitters. It's hard to imagine that a drug that's, you know, so powerful in the brain that it create, you know, changes our consciousness won't have a use. Um, and I think it's fair to say that all of us here are pro decriminalization of most drugs. <laughs> like we want these off of the you will go to jail if you use them type of, of thing. Um, so, so we're, we're, you know, I always. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So whenever I, I'm kind of a little bit critical of the science, I want to make sure that I just want the science to be great. I don't have like a bias against these compounds. I, that, that's yeah. where it gets sorry. There's there's the one thing I, I before I forget. This is this is something that I think is super important because um as a gastroenterologist, I see a lot of cannabis hyperemesis syndrome. Yeah. or scrometing, you know, yeah. and that whole like <laughs> lady who did the scrometing tweet and became Twitter's main character for that day because of that ridiculous tweet. I hate to admit it, but there's truth to it because it's a real issue. Cannabis hyperemesis syndrome. And I have nothing against marijuana, but some degree of people who do it develop this issue, cannabis hyperemesis syndrome. And getting people to believe that on one hand, I have nothing against marijuana and I don't judge 
the use of it. And I think there is a good place for it in society. Um, but the other hand being like, you know, some people are not going to respond well to it. Uh, it's hard to get people to to understand that I, I am being earnest in that approach when I tell someone, mm-hmm. I think your symptoms might be caused or exacerbated at least by marijuana use and you need to stop. Because with it in the back of their head is all this like, oh, this person just doesn't want me to do drugs. Mm-hmm. And, and I, that I'm not, I and I want to make it clear to my pay, I try to, I hope I do make it clear to them that no, I mean, I for decriminalization of marijuana and I was and, and still am. So, and, and just like you mentioned, most of these other medications too, but it's hard to find the, the thread that line, you know? And I, I think when it comes to the discussion of like medical indications for these classically recreational or illicit substances that in my mind, honestly, seems to worsen, worsen the whatever narrative. Um, because I mean, thinking about like medical marijuana, so marijuana has not, or cannabis has not shown any significant benefits for pretty much anything. Um, I mean, very, very high doses of certain compounds found in the cannabis plant, maybe help with refractory forms of epilepsy. But, um, the, the people who are pushing for it for like pain control, for anxiety, for all of this, there, there's no evidence to suggest that any of that is true. Um, and from my perspective, I mean, if someone wants to go home at the end of the day and use cannabis, great, they should be able to do that. They shouldn't have to have a medical indication. Um, if it works for someone's knee pain, their arthritis, I I'm elated to hear that, but, uh, the, the evidence doesn't suggest that it's like a good painkiller. Um, yeah. And I, I feel like one of the, the traps and this happens all the time. If you read about um, mushrooms are even described as magic mushrooms. I mean, this idea that they're literally magic, like somehow they can have only a beneficial effect <laughs> there. It's like magic Th- that would yeah. literally be magic, but anything that's going to have an effect is likely going to have a side effect. Everything that has a, um, you know, an effect on our human bodies will likely have a toxicity and like toxicity is all about the dose. It's not about the substance. And, and so, um, uh, you know, I think it's just this idea and, and this marketing, this idea behind it, that it's the natural way to treat these things. Um, when you're using a compound beyond its natural purposes, you're not using it naturally. And and so it's going to have side effects. Um, so, so I think that's just that, you know, any drug that has an effect is going to have a side effect and we shouldn't pretend like they're magic or they're going to, they're going to be all benefit and no harm. Mm-hmm. And we should be very careful to map out the harms and benefits. Yeah. And I don't want to say that all of these things are, are safe because I don't think decriminalization, legalization, whatever should imply that things are safe. We have plenty of legal things that are very unsafe. Um, as far as kind of like direct organ toxicity from substances go, the hallucinogens for the most part are actually mm-hmm. incredible, incredibly benign to me. There is kind of the, the very rare risk of the persistent um, mm-hmm. like bad trip syndrome that Tyler mentioned. Um, there is a concern for serotonin syndrome that you don't really see from most of these, even, even in kind of classical situations that would cause serotonin syndrome. Um, the one accepting being like MDMA, but yeah, I, I think decriminalization and legalization would be good, not only for research purposes, um, but if people really just want to have a different experience or they think that this is beneficial to them, then why not? Yeah. Yeah, the being able to study it seems like we had this discussion when we talked about kratom, 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 kratom. You know, uh, it's hard to study it when it's not legal, and you know, we I want to study it. I want to see what the the data shows about these things. Yeah, you had a you had a question, and you had posted to Twitter about us being on, and you had a question, and yeah, let's let's go to about yeah, someone had asked about um, using. SSRIs or medications with, um, with these, um, uh, substances like generally the psychedelic class. I just wanted to cop on that quickly. First, I wanted to plug a yeah. friend's website. There's drugcocktails.ca. Um, it's created by a, a colleague of mine, Dr. Dean Elb, who's a psycho, um, who's a, um, uh, a clinical pharmacist PhD here in B- at NBC. And he created this website specifically, if you're on a psychiatric medication, you put the, the name of the medication in and it'll tell you how drugs 
that people use recreationally, interact with that. It'll tell you what happens when you take alcohol. It'll tell you what happens when you smoke cigarettes. And typically what we say with psychedelics and SSRIs, and this is both patient reports as well as what we can observe, is people tend to get less, less of an effect. It seems to blunt the effect of the psychedelic. Um, so people generally don't enjoy the psychedelic as much when they're on an SSRI because it doesn't provide as much of the effect. Um, the, the, the risk I would say with it would be you would overdose, you would take more than, than you should because you're getting less of an effect. Um, and you know, it's more of a theoretical risk than something I think we see a lot, mm -hmm. but I, I do know that if you look at the, there's a lot of forums on people who call themselves psychonauts and use a whole bunch of psychedelics and experiment with different substances. They'll generally say that SSRIs blunt your response to, mm -hmm. to those. Yeah. yeah. Is there a cross tolerance between psychedelics? Like if you do LSDs and make it less likely that you'll have a big effect from psilocybin? It, it's certainly reported that like it, over time you you kind of can burn out a little bit and you need to take a bit of a refractory period before you can before you can really get the same effect and it seems to be cross like it, it seems to be cross like hallucinogen experience so um i think it is but i i, I don't know uh, it, yeah. it with this study that you're doing is is the plan that ketamine would be used uh short term or would it be mm -hmm. Not, We're no looking at it use? specifically for suicidality because the reality in suicidality is we don't have a lot of evidence-based treatments. Um, so we have lots of ways to show a therapy or a medication decreases depression. We can treat schizophrenia. We can approach someone if they're having a life problem and if we can help them with that. People in poverty, we can apply for programs to lift them out. But actually changing suicidality is a hard thing to do, like yeah. just directly doing it. And, and if you look at some of these early reports on ketamine, it seems to have a strong effect on suicidality. So our specific question is, if we take people and, you know, I work with kids, if we take young people, and by the way, don't ask me how hard it was to get ethics to approve the use of ketamine in kids for a <laughs> randomized control study for an unproven treatment. It took a lot of work to get Health Canada on board and all the all the ethics agencies. But we, we wanted to ask this really simple question. If people came into the emergency department and we were going to admit them for suicidality, would we tell a difference um, if they got ketamine um, before they went up, you know, the next day and in the following weeks, would there be a difference in their outcomes? Would their suicidality scores come down or would their outcomes improve? We're doing a, we're doing a sort of preliminary study, but it'll soon be a multi multi-center study, but this is the type of science that you have to do. Whereas right now I have parents asking me, can my child have ketamine because of what they've read about it? And there isn't a single study showing that it works. We did a meta-analysis and we came up with one study that didn't even look at suicidality. And, and yet I'm still having patients and families asking me about using ketamine because of all the hype. So how do you do a meta-analysis on one article? This is a review, You review right? 1200 <laughs> articles that purport to be studies and then you realize that none of them are talking about children. Ah, Not a single gotcha. one gotcha. includes someone okay. under the age of 17. <laughs> so so it, it, what I'm sensing is like, you, cause you're going for not the low hanging fruit. You're not like going to see if ketamine use will increase like happiness scores by a couple points. Mm -hmm. You're going for the big difficult to treat, like really like like the suicidal patients who are, yeah. you know, have tried lots of stuff. You're, you're going to try and, take a big swing to see if it works because that proves it better yeah, i hope and we're doing have it to in a situation like this i hope we're doing it and i'm part of the Doan lab so quinn Doan is is the lead author on this um and our research coordinator um just a fantastic researcher and you know we're, we're trying to do this as scientifically as possible i'm personally very skeptical so i'm setting this up so that if we show an effect, I'm going to be very impressed by ketamine. We're asking a real world question on suicidality. We're not like, did your mood slightly improve? We're saying we're looking at a suicidality index and we're, we're triple blinding with control and blinding checks. Um, we're setting up a study that will, you know, in my mind, it would, it would satisfy me as a skeptic. If it came back that ketamine had a strong effect on suicidality, 
I'd be recommending ketamine to most of my kids in the ER that presented with suicidality. And ultimately, all we want are tools that work. We are very agnostic to what those tools are. If you told me that holding a wooden spoon in one hand and twirling your fingers would, would get you less depressed, I would recommend it. But we'd have to show that that's the case before we start recommending it. And in ketamine, the carts definitely come before the horse. And we're seeing so many people jumping to asking about ketamine or using ketamine before they've tried traditional treatments. Got you. And I think that's exactly the kind of research that both needs to be done. I mean, obviously that's like very high quality research, how, how you do it. But one of the things that comes up a lot is that people feel that this is being suppressed or, or whatever. These are not being used for these medical indications when, when they could be. Um, and I mean, ketamine is a good example. MDMA is one that has mm -hmm. had a big resurgence in recent years and has actually had pretty high quality studies in terms of depression that showed no benefit. Um, and so, I mean, MDMA is interesting to talk about because maybe it has benefit for PTSD, but in terms of depression, it was actually studied and showed not to be beneficial. And then there's other things, I mean, like Ibogaine, which for whatever reason is having like a big moment for the past few years now, um, especially in the addiction world. A lot of these come up in terms of uh, addiction as well. Um, and I mean, Ibogaine is incredibly unsafe and the reason that it's not used and the reason that it's illegal in the United States is because so many people died from it. Um, and we have very good evidence that it's not only ineffective, but it's unsafe. And so anecdotes get put forth, uh, kind of like urban legends are spreading that, that people know someone who knows someone whose cousin stopped using heroin when they started taking Ibogaine. Um, but the, the reality of it is that when we study Ibogaine in kind of treatment of addiction, a lot of people died. Um, and so we don't want that to happen. So that's a medication I'm not familiar with. What's Ibogaine? Ibogaine. It's like Iocane powder. Iocane powder. Yeah, it's a hallucinogen. It comes from a tree um, in West Africa, I believe. And it had a very big moment in like the 60s and 70s where these anecdotal reports of people getting off of other drugs, particularly heroin, kind of made the rounds. And this was like a a wonder drug in especially like the, the New York heroin scene. Um, and then actually this was globally studied pretty intensely in the eighties and nineties. And, um, and so many people died in, in these trials and from close association with just Ibogaine use in the literature that all of, all of these had to be stopped. Um, and it definitely has very, very well known and well understood cardio toxicity. So I mean, it, it causes electrical conduction problems in the mm. heart. Mm -hmm. um, but for whatever reason, Ibogaine is now having a big moment. There's Ibogaine clinics. I'm sure there's some in the United States, even though they're not supposed to be here, but in like Central and South America, people from the US will, will go there for Ibogaine treatment to try to stop whatever they're doing. Um, yeah, it's kind of just kind of a, a very risky business, I would say. Yeah, well, you heard it here, folks. Don't do that. <laughs> um, okay, let, let's go to some uh, listener questions here. Uh, so here's one from Dr. Neuro at Neuro Fourier. Tons of misinformation on psychedelics in general, i.e. administering them will make people calm. What are some of the top misinformation threads to watch out for when seeing discussions online? Also good to expand on what psychedelics are just beyond LSD and shrooms. Yeah. We've kind of gone into that a little bit and talked a little more about that, but what about, what about the first part of that question, which is the misinformation? Yeah. I mean, I, I'd like to, I'd like to dial back, you know, I think the strongest misinformation that I'd like to battle back is that they have sort of replaced standard treatments. Um, like they're, they're the newest and the best. They're actually quite old. There's studies going back to the fifties <laughs> and they, um, the studies read remarkably similar back to the 50s that they do now. They're very small trials. They're very unconvincing evidence. There's lots of subjective scoring, not a lot of blinding, some shared experiences between the clinician and the researcher and the, mm -hmm. and the subject. And, and so um, it, just to be, I think that, I, I think we, we want to just, I just want to pump the brakes on this idea that they're the new amazing treatment for X we want to explore it. I want high quality evidence. Let's get that off schedule so we can get all the, all the research labs looking at the various ways we can use these compounds. But to, you know, if I read Time or Newsweek or New York Times, pretty much 
weekly to monthly, I can read about how there are just these amazing new magic treatments for depression. And, and, and that really sets, you know, that's not benign. People talk about these things as if it doesn't affect people, but you know, if, if people are sold a, a bag of hope and then it doesn't work out, that can be really, really painful. Yeah. Um, and I think it's really dangerous to oversell the hype um, when, you know, it could be a very moderate effect. Yeah. And I think, I mean, people will say that like doing shrooms got them to quit smoking or something. And that's great. I'm so supportive of that. I think people should be able to do shrooms if they want. And I hope that it works to get people to stop smoking that would be a wonderful tool to have. Um, but kind of putting this forth as a panacea or saying that there's any evidence based on any of any of that uh, really just isn't isn't the case. Mm-hmm. Well, Ryan, along those lines, here's another question from retired hippie at Peacock Vapor. <laughs> Please discuss fun. Some of us have been doing them for decades for fun. This takes zero away from their benefit, but it, it is always missed. It's always about investors and therapists. You guys want to discuss their recreational use? I mean, I think recreational use, like it is what it is. It has a place. I don't think it should be criminalized. It is ludicrous to me. The DEA scheduling in the United States, I mean, is a blatant lie. Like it's saying that these medications have no safety profile and have no therapeutic or drugs have no safety profile or therapeutic benefit is patently false. Um, Obviously, anything can be unsafe in the in certain circumstances. Um, so, I mean, I support people having access to these recreationally. I think there is a concern that we kind of all voiced about how the studies for these are kind of leaning into like weird venture capital, uh, pharmaceutical kind of corporate profit territory when these are are very old substances, almost all for the most part. Um, and trying to push them as pharmaceuticals when they don't have evidence is definitely concerning for me. I'll, I'll add that it's, there's a couple of things that are not fun. Number one is don't, if you're going to do hallucinogens, doing them alone is not often a good idea. Like it's generally something that you should do with, with other people that can be there to help you through it. Um, the second would be don't, and you were kind of alluding to this earlier. Don't give it to someone else without telling them. Yeah. Um, that's often the story that I hear when I see kids come in thinking that they're psychotic and, and they have a really bad trip. Yeah. You know, if, if you're hallucinating and you don't have an understanding as why that I can't imagine anything that's scarier than that. Can I, can I tell you, can I tell you this? I, I don't think yeah. anyone important is going to be listening to this. So I'm going to share this story with you um, about my accidental uh, intake. Um, it was a night so bad that I learned that night that there's no heaven. No, there's no, but probably not at least, but there is definitely a hell in hell is losing control of your own mind and not knowing what's happening and not being able to do anything about it. It, it is the worst so there is nothing worse to me than someone doing that to someone else. And it's so, it doesn't make a lot of, I mean, we hear a lot of stories that I'm sure are not true. Cause I just, people with drugs just don't give them away for free. But um, we also know that, you know, people do get accidental ingestions as well. And there is really nothing worse than that. That's really fucking awful. Yeah. Um, let, let me go to another question. This is this is a good one. Roberto Roberto at Goya's house says different ways of consuming it. And if that affects the trip, taking psychedelics with other drugs, good or bad idea? I think I know the answer to that one. Microdosing. What does science have to say about it? Are there any companies you're excited about entering the space? I mean, I think particularly the first part of that question is the one I, I think we haven't touched on at all, which is, are there different ways of consuming it that affect the way it works and taking it with other drugs? For the most part, the method of consumption doesn't really impact these drugs um, in terms of, I mean, certain things like DMT, which, I mean, if anyone is listening to the Rogan podcast, he's a big DMT proponent, but uh, that like that can be smoked and give you a much faster onset and allegedly more intense uh, experience. And then there's certain kind of, again, very anecdotal. There's no evidence to these ways that people take them. I mean, 
like mixing their shrooms with something acidic to help them be absorbed in the stomach or something like that. But I liked this question for one reason, because recently within the past couple of years, I saw this case report of someone who injected psilocybin mushrooms um, and oh ended up, yeah, you're, you're right. They ended up with a very prolonged uh, intensive care stay in the hospital from psilocybin mushrooms growing inside of their bloodstream and all of their organs. And I believe they ended up on like lifelong antifungal therapy because they survived, but with, with severe consequences. So, I mean, I would say don't inject fungus into your blood. Um, Yeah. Don't you're just saying that because you're part, you're the man. But you when I want people to I live think, free, I think when as I, well, though, Ryan, Ryan, Ryan said this earlier, but I think in terms of delivery, you want to be in a system that is designed for calm, organized people around like the like if, if you're just doing it and then you're going out in the world, it might be a really bad time for you. But if you have things set up in a way to be calm, that's why you see a lot of like the sort of shamanistic practices. It's like a tea with nice music playing and a quiet room and those types of things. And I think that probably helps in terms of the method of delivery as well. And Tyler has said this multiple times, but you should have someone there to supervise yeah. you who is not on the mm-hmm. same drugs, right? Um, like for a babysitter for all intents and purposes, because bad things definitely can happen to people who do not know what their reality is. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think we've kind of touched on it, but just to make it clear, uh, taking psychedelics with other drugs, I'm not talking about like prescription drugs, but with other psychedelics and mixing psychedelics seems like a bad idea, correct? All right. So I'll make sure we're all on the same page with that. Yep, definitely. What about Allison Paul Kavala or at Allison Polk? Uh, but her question, what about combining them with SSRIs and other serotonergic drugs? Any evidence or so? Yeah, I spoke to that. I spoke to that. That it tends to blunt it. Um, And uh, interestingly, the thing that makes um, atypical antipsychotics atypical is their action on the on the five HT two A receptor. So, but I haven't seen a lot on psychedelics and antipsychotics. Uh, I do know that if someone presents with pretty significant uh, hallucinatory experiences we'll put them on an antipsychotic. Uh, but honestly, uh, it, it is it, it is something that sort of wears off over time. So we, I, I have to say, it's you don't read a lot of research in this. I think there's um, just a general bend to, there's a ton, uh, I have to say, there's a lot of research on websites that are dedicated to psychonauts, like Arrowhead and stuff like this, that are mm-hmm. like just tons of user experiences, but they're the most anecdotal things. And, and as, a, as a, someone who's really scientific like myself, it's really difficult to read those because they, they all say different things and they can't all be true. Yeah, and I think, I mean, when it comes to these drugs, if you're taking them to try to self-treat depression, whatever, there's a good chance that you might be on another depression medication. Right. Um, and so talking about kind of the risk for like toxicity when you combine medications, definitely there is a risk for serotonin syndrome, um, which is a bad thing. It's actually one of the, the worst of the, the toxidromes that I deal with. Um, and for the most part, like mushrooms and LSD have pretty low risk of that, but things like MDMA actually have amphetamine effects and can cause kind of other problems as well. We talked about Ibogaine. Um, but I think just making sure like, you know, what you're actually kind of getting into, uh, and if you're on any other medications, I mean, trying to talk to someone who can help you through medication interactions would be useful because while sites like Arrowhead and Reddit um, and all of these places are invaluable. Honestly, uh, I'm not just saying that they, they are kind of all just anecdotes from people who may not know what they're talking about or may have made it all up. And just because we've mentioned now a couple of times, serotonin syndrome is a potentially life-threatening mm-hmm. uh, condition associated with increased serotonergic activity. Um, described usually by mental status changes, autonomic hyperactivity, neuromuscular problems. Um, And it it sounds like it can range quite a bit from benign to very serious and even lethal, although it's not my form of malignant catatonia and it's strongly associated with morbidity and mortality. So it's a real, it's a real concern. I always say if you're a clinician, you always want to look for the triad of of fever, confusion, and stiffness. If you see that, be real suspicious. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. 
I'm partial to serotonin syndrome. Uh, <laughs> do you know? Do you know what the the gold standard test for diagnosing it is? No. What is it? It's an exam by a medical toxicologist. Oh, that's where you come in, buddy. Your time to shine. <laughs> it's my my only value. <laughs> You got so much value. My goodness. Okay. Here's uh, there's a lot of good questions here. We're not going to get to all of them, um, but just maybe a couple more here. Cricket at cricket underscore 71 says uh, LSD. I was told that one hit could come back to haunt you in the form of a flashback years later. Never understood how that could work. Any truth to it? If true, why would it be then used to treat PTSD? Um, it's a good question. We kind of touched on it a little bit, but can you guys address it? It's definitely true. I, I feel like Tyler would have a lot more better insight than me, um, but it definitely happens. Yeah, I, I wish I could say we know how. Um, anything that creates a profound experience, can you can have a flashback. We're, we're very, we, we know a lot about PTSD flashbacks. So someone's experienced a traumatic event, like witnessing a death or, or something very traumatic. And then years later, they can just all of a sudden have a flashback where they're experiencing the same thing over again. And it's not deja vu or just a remembrance. Like it could be literally, I can see the car crash or I can smell the smells or I can feel the heat of the fire. You know, it's a full on hallucinatory experience. Uh, flashbacks are quite convincing. And it seems like whatever LSD does, it can it can kind of burrow its way in that way. And, and I, I remember there was a study, I think it was following up about 129 or 130 LSD users. And I think it was about 15 or so of them that had recurrent flashbacks well after when they used the LSD. Um, the mechanism that, who knows? <laughs> I don't know what mm -hmm. the mechanism, but it is definitely a real thing. You know, and and having a flashback in an uncontrolled way could be very debilitating. Like you can imagine that, you know, you're using it recreationally in a setting, but then if you're driving and you have a flashback, that could be really dangerous. Yeah. So um, we're not really sure a lot about it. It's something that still we need to learn a lot more about. And finally, Sheologian at Sheologian says, I want to take a shot. Anyone says K-hole. So K-hole, 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 K-hole. Hopefully you're not driving or at work because you are definitely taking those shots. All of them. All of them. Um, all right, guys. God, well, it's so great to talk to you guys. And thank you for, come, for being here and coming back and helping me ease back into um, this whole podcasting business. Um, please follow both these guys. I honestly, if you if you are someone, and we do have a lot of listeners who are not on Twitter, I'm telling you to get on Twitter and follow three people. Follow me at the House of Pod and follow these two guys. If you follow no one else, It'll be worth your while. There's so much education. They're, they have so much fun, funny, smart things to add to your life. You're really doing yourself a disservice by not staying up to date with everything that's going on with them. So uh, let's start with you, Ryan. Please tell people where they can find you. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Ryan Marino, R-Y-A-N-M-A-R-I-N-O. And Tyler. Yep, I'm at Tyler Black 32 for Magic Johnson, the greatest basketball player that ever lived. Step three, three. Um, love both you guys so much. Thank you guys for coming on. All right, thanks. Thanks. Bye. This podcast is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please consult a physician or other qualified health care provider for your specific health care needs or concerns. The opinions expressed on this podcast do not represent the opinions of our employees. Details in the podcast have been changed so that patient identification is not possible.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.